Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 26 in the book of Hebrews titled, Let Us Draw Near, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I'm Joel Harvard, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. We're now in chapter 10. We've talked about Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice, the superiority of him and his priesthood over the Levitical priests. What do we find here in 19 through 25 with this exhortation to draw near to God? Well, this is an incredible section, and, and just as you said at the at the very end there, it's just a command, an open command that we sinners have to draw into the presence of Almighty God. And it uses that uh, Levitical priesthood language, the Old Covenant language of a, a curtain having been opened for us, uh, and we're going to talk some more about that. We've already discussed it, but we have the clear exhortation to draw near to God. But we also have in this chapter one of the most important exhortations to, uh, to draw near to each other, that we should have fellowship with one another and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So it's uh, a powerful section of the book of Hebrews. So draw near to God and draw near to each other. Yeah. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. So my first question to you, Andy, is we see these words, let us, in this section. It's actually multiple times. And what is the most prominent or most important let us of this passage, these exhortations? Sure, I would say it's uh, verse 22, let us draw near to God. And so the idea is that we would be in intimate relationship with God, that we would not be estranged from him, feel guilty from him. The author has been talking about having our consciences cleansed. Um, and so the idea is that anything that would hinder our fellowship with God has been entirely removed. Satan is very wicked in this matter of our sin and our temptation. Uh, how he will allure and entice us to sin. He'll actively do this through demons and through the world system that he set up. But once we've committed sin, then he turns and accuses us most viciously, as he's called the accuser of the brothers. Uh, and so he, he accuses us of wrongdoing, and he's right. We have done wrong. He is, of course, the greatest hypocrite in the universe because he is the worst evildoer. But we are crushed by these accusations. We're crushed by the history of our sin. We feel guilty, and we feel that we can never be, be close to God. And so we don't stay close to God, and that's very much to Satan's purpose. Because if we're not close to God, we're just going to keep on sinning. And we're going to keep feeling more and more guilty, and it's a downward, really downward spiral that leads to hell. So now, with Christ having come as our great Savior, and He has shed His blood, and the Holy Spirit has applied that blood to us, and we have been, been cleansed of our sins, we have to draw near to God, and that's what the author wants us to do. Right. Now, we've talked extensively about the purpose of the book of Hebrews, uh, you know, a warning letter written to uh, Jewish Christians who are in danger of, of going back to apostasy, uh, going back and apostatizing and going back to Judaism. At the end of the book, in chapter 13, he calls this letter a word of exhortation. He says, you know, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written you briefly. How do these let us statements, you know, let us draw near to God and let us draw near to each other, 
How do these fit into his overall argument? Yeah, I think what's happening is the people are being really pressed by temptations, uh, earthly circumstances, very harsh scenarios where authority figures are against them. Uh, he even talks about, and we'll discuss later, God willing, uh, how people are being incarcerated. They have lost some of their possessions, if not all of them. How it, it took certain courage for the Hebrew Christians in early stages to stand with people who are being publicly condemned for their faith. So it's a very harsh environment, something we American Christians know very little about except by reading about it. Uh, but in that harsh environment, they are crumbling. They are under temptation to turn away from Christ. And so the author has to talk them into standing firm. He uses the ministry of the word. And so the exhortations really are to give them courage to their convictions, to help them to stand firm. But by far the greatest force that will enable them to stand firm is an intimate love relationship with God through Christ. That will enable them to bear any opposition they would ever have. They would know, as we'll talk about later, that they have themselves better and lasting possessions. And so they have absolute confidence about this. And so it gives them strength. So the, the Satan's top priority is to get us separated from God so that we're not close to him. The author's top priority here is no to say, let us be intimate with God. Let's draw near all the more, closer to him than ever before. Right. Now, what is, what is the basis of our confidence to be able to enter and draw near to God? Because if you think about drawing near to God, he, he is a high king. He dwells in a high and lofty place, as he says in Isaiah. And I'm reminded of Esther when uh, she was terrified to enter into the throne room um, lest she be killed. Uh, she had to get the scepter extended. So it's a terrifying thing to go in front of a king. So what's the basis of us being able to draw near to God? Well, the word confidence in this translation also is translated sometimes boldness. And I think, we, I think in, in our setting, we underestimate what kind of boldness or confidence we need to draw near to God. I don't think we fear him like we should. I don't think we understand that, as the author of Hebrews himself will say, our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a great king. Whereas you quoted Isaiah saying, I dwell in a high and holy place. Do you know who I am? To really ponder the fact that the seraphim cover their faces and cover their feet. And they cry, holy, 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 that they have a sense of the infinite majesty of God. And first of all, I think we just need to understand it does in fact take boldness to draw near to God. I think there are some people that are on the other side of the equation and they're so terrified of such a powerful God. I think about Martin Luther who didn't want to even lift the cup as he began as a priest. And the cup in his mind and his poor theology at that point thought actually was the body and blood of Christ. And he was trembling in the presence of such a holy, powerful God. We are much too familiar with God. So we don't really have a sense of the holy terror, a sense of the holiness. So it's important for us to, to establish that. But having established that, we need to understand we should have boldness or confidence to draw near to God. Now, the question you ask me is, what is the basis of that confidence? And the basis of the confidence, as I've just said, is not because... God is such a warm, inviting person and just overlooks sin like it's no big deal. And he's like a, a kind of friendly uncle. That's not the basis of our confidence. The basis of our confidence is that God has righteously slaughtered his own son on our behalf, thus forever removing his own wrath from us. It would be unjust for him to keep us on the outside. It would be unjust for him to condemn us now that Christ has been slaughtered on our behalf. So the text actually says that we are drawing near by the blood of Jesus. 
And so my confidence, your confidence, is based on the infinite majesty and person of Christ, who he was and what he did. He died in our place on the cross. That's the source of my confidence. There is infinite worth and value in the blood of Jesus. Amen. And uh, verse 20 gets to this when he says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So you have this image of the tabernacle or the temple, this curtain prohibiting people from going into the most holy place. But then through Jesus' flesh, we can now enter in Mm. and meet with God. Absolutely. I I think, you know, the author just keeps bringing us back to that old covenant uh, regulation that was set up. And you read about it at the end of the book of Exodus, where the, the recipe, let's say, or the the design for the tabernacle is given and we have all of those curtains and how how high they would be and what they would be made out of and the acacia wood poles and all the loops and rings and pegs and and you know the the height of the of the dugong whatever that is a sea porpoise or something like that so it would be waterproof and you got all this structure but the the curtains were meant to keep people out and so most people couldn't even enter the holy holy places, as you're talking about. They, they were left out, but the priests could enter. But only the priests could enter uh, the most holy place once a year and never without blood, as the author's already made plain. So this, this curtain was meant to separate us from God. And just as we've said many times before, the message of the Old Covenant is this far you may come and no further. You can come to the base of Mount Sinai, but you can't go up on Mount Sinai. There's a fence there. He said to Moses, do not come any closer. And take off your sandals for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. We're just told, this far you may come and no farther. Now we're told, come right into the presence of God, based on the blood of Jesus. And, of course, we know that the backdrop of this, the actual physical curtain in the temple, was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died. Very plainly stated in Matthew's Gospel. And so the idea is, God alone has the right, God alone has the authority to tear that curtain so it was torn from top to bottom. And so this teaches us that there is a way, there is access into the presence of God now. Mm. Now, what do you get out of verse 22 where he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And then he returns a little bit to more Old Testament imagery with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Mm. Well, it seems like there's an internal and external aspect of our salvation. You know, he's working from the inside out. And so I, the, the idea is we're drawing near to God with our hearts being a certain way and with our lifestyles being a certain way, our bodies. And so the author here, I, 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 as I read it, that we are coming with a sincere heart or a true heart, a genuine heart of faith. Um, it's a genuine faith. It's not feigned. It's not fake. It's not counterfeit. We genuinely believe in Jesus. We've trusted in him as our Lord and Savior, and we have a right relationship with God. And so that's a sincere heart. More than that, we want a love relationship with God the Father, and that's our desire. So we're coming with pure motives, with right motives, not hypocritical, not a sham or a show, a sincere heart. And this is something that the the Lord alone can work in us. That's the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put in. We have a living yearning love relationship with God through Christ. So that's the sincere heart. And then we're supposed to draw near in full assurance of faith. And so what does he mean by that? I think the idea is that we are fully confident that God will keep his promise. He will not lash out and strike us dead for our sins. But we have confidence and assurance that he will accept us 
and welcome us and love us. And not just here spiritually, but eternally in heaven that we'll be welcomed, that we are in a right relationship with God. And then the author says, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And so the idea there is we don't even have any memory of our sins needed. We don't have to look back on it. We might remember them, but we don't feel guilty for them anymore because we can say that we are not the person. We are not that person. It was not us who did the sin, but it was sin living in us. And so there's been a decisive separation between me and my sins. And so my my conscience is cleansed. The blood of Jesus is sufficient for me. I don't need anything else. My good works wouldn't add anything to Christ's finished work. So all of that's internal, our minds and our hearts and our consciences. And then it says having our bodies washed with pure water. And the idea here is of cleansing our actual daily lives from anything that defiles, anything that's impure, that's sanctification. And we're not going to get that perfectly in our lives. We're still going to say things that we shouldn't say, and we're going to do things we shouldn't do, though it grieves us. But the idea here is that We want to be cleansed. We want to have a clean lifestyle. So in that manner, in that manner, we draw near to God. So practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we enter in? How do we draw near? Give me me five things that you would recommend a Christian do to draw near to God. Okay, well, let's just start with some practicalities. They should have a daily quiet time. They should every day begin their day in the Word and in prayer. And they should open up God's Word and and read it as though God, their Father, were speaking directly to them by the Holy Spirit. Feed on God's Word. Feel that He, the Holy Spirit, as we've seen in this book, in the book of Hebrews many times, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today by Psalm 95 or Psalm 23 or any psalm or any part of Scripture. God is speaking to you, a living Word, living and active. And you then are speaking back to Him. And you're close to him and you're talking to him. I mean, in your quiet time, you're having a, an intimate time with God and you are pouring out your heart in prayer. So it starts there. Then I would say, secondly, uh, having studied God's word and applied it to yourself, you get up and seek to obey it. Maybe at the end of your quiet time, say, Lord, are there some things you want me to do today that would be pleasing to you? And go do them. Uh, be an ob- obedient son or daughter of the living God. Thirdly, I would say, pray without ceasing. Draw near continually. Actually, don't ever leave. And if you sense that you're drifting a little bit, you're not thinking about him, haven't thought about him for the last 45 minutes, you've been busy at work, come back again. The scripture says, pray without ceasing. So I think there's that intimacy in drawing near. I think fourthly, especially when you have sinned, uh, something happens, we're going to mess up. To know that we have a great high priest who's interceding for us, let us especially draw near then to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's the end end of chapter 4. So especially when we feel guilty, especially when we need help, or when we're being tempted, you know, so in the time of sin, both temptation and then sadly if we do commit. And then finally, we'll talk about this in a minute, draw near to the people of God, go to church, you know, be involved in a healthy local church. So those would be some five ways. Glad you didn't ask for 10. I think I would run out of some ideas, but continually draw near to God. Well, if I asked for 10, it would be hard to put all 10 into practice. So I only asked for five. (laughs) Be a busy day. In verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So there's another let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What exactly is he exhorting us to do? If I could just shift it slightly, and and let's keep the focus just initially here on the first audience of this letter. 
the Hebrew Christians, people who are Jewish professors of faith in Christ, being tempted to turn their backs on Jesus. So at the end of this chapter, he's going to give a severe warning to people who forsake Christ and trample him under feet. So I would take verse 23 to be, don't apostatize. Let us hold fast to our Christian hope. Let us continue to believe in Christ. And I like the word hope. Let us continue to believe with all of our hearts that the future is bright based on the promises of God. Let us hold unswervingly, unremittingly, with with actually ever-increasing intensity to our faith that we are receiving as an inheritance a holy city and a holy country. And they are coming, the home of righteousness, and we belong there. We're going there. Words can't describe it. It's infinitely better than anything we could have here on earth. Let's hold unswervingly to that hope that we profess as Christians. So I think that's what it means. We should have buoyant, optimistic, confident hearts, no matter what our circumstances. Yeah, and the confidence is, is based on the faithfulness of God. For it says, for he who promises faithful. That's right. God is going to keep his promises. And as we're going to see in chapter 11... All of those patriarchs and great heroes of the Old Testament died not having received the promises. He writes that because he expects that we're going to die not having received the best promises. Some promises we've received when we're on our deathbed, when we're breathing our our fifth to last, fourth to last, third to last, second to last, and last breath. He is in the process at that point of fulfilling a promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will protect you to the end. When you don't need your faith anymore, you will give it up for sight. But until that time comes, I will sustain your faith. So we will have received many promises, but not the best ones. The best ones are, frankly, heaven. And so we will, like the patriarchs of old, die not having received the promises. But we will still have hope. We'll die in hope, believing that the best is yet to come. Amen. Now, verse 24 takes us into the last let us of today. And I know it's one that's near and dear to both of our hearts. The author in the ESV says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, I know we've talked about this before. You've done some some work in the original languages and you've got some insights you want to share about what exactly we're considering and what exactly the author is exhorting us to do. So can you go into that? Well, the author does give us a robust picture horizontally of the people of God that we're not alone here on our journey from, from earth to heaven, that we've got fellow pilgrims, fellow travelers with us. We're part of uh, the church of the living God, and that includes local church. And so the author here is talking about the brothers and sisters in Christ that are part of our local assembly, the people we know by name, the people that we have observed. We've seen them in life. We've seen them in different settings. We've seen them in different ministry settings. We've seen them do hospitality, let's say. We've perhaps heard some of them open the Word of God and do some teaching. We've seen them uh, do various spiritual gift ministries, uh, different things that are labeled in that way. And we've observed that. These are people that we know. We're living life with them. And they're the ones that are going to see to it that none of us has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Chapter 3, we're going to have brothers and sisters around us who know us and love us. So that's who he's addressing here. And it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. But literally in the Greek, it says something a little more awkward. And most of the English translations smooth out the awkwardness but lose the precision of what it is we're considering. Or really, I should say, who it is we're considering. Um, the Greek, Greek is a very precise language. And so there's a verb and a direct object. 
and a subject. The subject is who is doing the verb. The verb is the action. And the direct object is who the action is done to. In this case, the verb is consider. So there's a, th a thoughtfulness here, a thinking, a pondering. And the exhortation, let us consider. But in the Greek, the direct object is one another. So you're not considering, um, in this, most translations put a, a, a word how in there, like a methodology type of thing, a technique, an approach. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. I would say it's better to be kind of wooden and technical here and say, actually what the text says is, let us consider one another to spur toward love and good deeds, something like that. So the idea is you're not thinking about methodology or technique or, or a how, you're thinking about a who. So let's actually take up a brother or a sister that we know well in our minds and take them up in prayer and consider them prayerfully and scripturally and think how we can spur that person or the other person or this sister or that brother toward love and good deeds. Let us consider people, not methodology. And the goal would be to maximize their love and good deeds, to maximize how they express love toward God vertically and toward one another horizontally, and do good deeds in service to God and to one another. To the end, I like to think of it this way, so that brothers and sisters are maximally wealthy in good deeds on Judgment Day. Yeah, there there are so many implications for this teaching, for the life of the church. You you have to be intentional about knowing people, about letting other people know you, about thinking and praying for other believers. There's a lot of practical applications that flow from this. What are give me some ways where if somebody wanted to try to obey this, how are ways that somebody could try to start thinking about other people to stir them up to love and good works. Yeah, it's, you know, I think just being mechanical and technical here is, is somewhat helpful. All right, again, it's not let's consider how, but let's consider who, people, but to the end that I can spur them on toward love and good deeds. So the idea is you just take somebody from the church directory, take a name, somebody you know pretty well. Let's say it's a, you know, if you're a man, it's a brother or a sister, you know, um, you know, you're a woman, it's a sister, but you can do it, you know, with people of the opposite sex. It's not a problem. But the idea is, I really want to speak a word of encouragement to this brother or to this sister. Lord, would you please now, through the Holy Spirit, show me some things that they do well. What would their spiritual gifts be? Could be that's part of their spiritual gift package. I don't think we have just one spiritual gift, but it could be an array of five or six abilities that come together in a, in a ministry. And so uh, you start to ponder them, you start to think, and if you just totally come up empty, then say, all right, Lord, I don't have answers, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out. So show me, help me to interact with this person more so that I can pray about them and consider them and then exhort them toward love and good deeds. So yeah, it's really a very robust horizontal fellowship where we're really trying to stimulate each other. And let's talk for a minute about provoke toward love and good deeds. Uh, is that what the ESV has? Is it has we get stir up in the ESV. Stir up. All right, sometimes spur. You know, the, the word is related to the English word paroxysms. Like, it's a very jarring word, like somebody's having a spasm or something like that. I like the word spur because you can imagine the, the twitchy, jumpy reaction of a horse that's being spurred by a, a cowboy, right? You know, who's on the, out on the range. And he's got these spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle. You know, he's got these, these round spurs on his boots, 
and he jabs them back into the hindquarters of the horse, I guess at the right amount of force if he loves his horse. And the idea here is to get the horse moving, okay? Just get off the dime, get going. And so the idea here is we're going to be effective in stimulating or stirring or spurring people on toward love and good deeds. So I don't think it has to be harsh, but the idea is be effective. Get, get the person going. Say, man, I love when you host our cell group or our home fellowship or our neighborhood Bible study. I love how you do that. Just you need to keep doing that because you are one of the best hosts I've ever seen. All right. That's a spurring on toward love and good deeds. I imagine if, if this was taken up by believers um, very effectively and faithfully, I imagine church squabbles would tend to diminish because mm-hmm. instead of thinking about, you know, what this person is not doing for me or how I want to get my way, you're thinking about other people. Like, man, how can I, how can I stir them on to, to love and to, to charity, to love Christ? Absolutely. You know, one of the things, and you know, we've talked a lot about this, is uh, our heavenly rewards. And, um, and the idea is in heaven we'll be completely delivered from selfishness and from pride. We will not be jealous at all. We will just so delight in our brothers' and sisters' rewards and in their glory. Well, we can actually do that now. And this is a verse. (laughs) We don't have to wait. So the idea is I can actually, with all my heart, look at a brother or sister and and in my heart say, we're not in competition. It's not like we're both in the same event, archery or the 10K or whatever, where only one of us can win the gold medal. No, actually, we can all win the gold medal. The idea is we can all be maximally fruitful with the setting God gives us. My desire is now, if I can think in a heavenly way, I want you, brother, to be as wealthy as possible on Judgment Day to the glory of God. And that's really the point here is I want the Father maximally pleased with you because I love my Father and I want Him pleased with you and I love you. So we're not in competition here. How can I help you be maximally wealthy on Judgment Day? So for me as a pastor, I actually think about this a lot. I get up on Sunday mornings and I preach and on Wednesdays and I teach and other times I teach to the end that the believers who listen to me may be maximally rewarded on Judgment Day by love and good deeds. Yeah. So then as a, as a bare minimum, to be benefited by this, you have to show up. And that's yeah, how you get verse 25. <laughs> so verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this verse is huge. I've heard so many Christians say that, you know, the New Testament never commands us to go to church. It's optional. Uh, this verse really destroys that. Can you talk about how important verse 25 is? Yeah, this is a vital verse for the obligation we have to attend public worship. And so this really speaks at this point to uh, local church. You can't um, assemble together with the invisible or the eternal or the perfected your universal church. You can't. Um, But this is really a local church ordinance. It's a local church aspect. And so you should be a covenant member of a healthy local church. And you should not forsake assembling yourself together with that local church. Now, this word forsake is a powerful word. When I hear the word forsake, I think about what Christ said to the church at Ephesus, where he said, you have forsaken your first love. And when I preached through that recently, I said, that was not an accident. That was an intentional choice that that church made to turn their backs on their first love for Jesus, the love they had at the beginning of their Christian lives. They made a choice and they turned their backs on Jesus. Well, in the same way, we're talking about an intentional 
uh, choice here, a habit. He even talks about the habit that some people get into of forsaking assembling themselves together. They're making a conscious choice to not go to church. And so I think you're right. There's no way we can make a biblical defense for saying, hey, it's fine to not go to church. Now, again, listen, we need to say, we always need to say, we're talking about able-bodied people. We're oh, talking yes. about people of that course. are able yeah. physically to do it. There's some people that actually they have a far greater intensity and love for the local church than those that are able-bodied because they haven't been able to go for two and a half years because they've been bedridden. They can't get out and do anything. And they actually, I've had people tell me with tears how much they miss church. How They listen to the sermons online. They listen to things, but they just miss being with the people of God. They just deeply miss it. But there are others that just throw it away like it's nothing, like it's no big deal. And they are the exactly the people the author's, author has in mind here. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We need to gather together. And why? So that we can look around the sanctuary or the room, wherever you are, and see other Christians singing the hymns and songs and spiritual songs. You can just see them. You're like, hey, I'm not alone in this world. And you can, you can come together in corporate prayer and confess your sins together. And you can pray for each other. And then you can all sit under the ministry of the Word as the pastor unfolds the Word. And it's a group experience, something that you're experiencing together. You can't, you can't do that remotely. I know that the, uh, that the Internet has many resources, like this podcast we're doing, and that's great. But it's no substitute for assembling, physically assembling together with the people of God. Yeah. So as a pastor, this is one of the early warning signs for you to alert you that maybe some members of your congregation are struggling in their faith oh, yeah. is you look for you look for regular church attendance. Not being legalistic, you can miss a Sunday and go on vacation or yeah. you know you got a trip, a business sure. trip over the weekend, but you look for patterns of yeah. these things because it says, uh, as is the habit of some. Yeah, Greek word is ethos. You know, it's their ethic. It's what they do. So they're in a habit. And also the word habit is important for all aspects of sanctification. You know, we need to develop habits of holiness, develop habits of Bible reading, habits of prayer. And so church attendance is a habit. You're just going to do it. You just, it's, it's unthinkable. If I'm, if I'm well enough to do anything, I'm well enough to go to church. And so we, we must have that habit and feed that habit of public attendance, uh, attendance at public worship. But some people feed the opposite habit. And they, I, th- I don't know how it happens. There could be some various reasons why the people do it. But, you know, they, um, they make a decision. And they're able-bodied. They're out there doing their hobby, maybe golf on Saturday. Or they're, they're there at work Monday through Friday. But then they just aren't in church on Sunday. So, yeah, we elders, as we shepherd people, and we start to see some changes in habit patterns here, we're going to hunt it down. We're going to go after the people. We're going to be shepherds and go to look for the ones that are wandering off. And this is one of the ways we know they're wandering off. They're able-bodied, and they're choosing not to attend worship. And they're making a habit of doing that. Yeah. Now, you've developed a list of things, of reasons why people uh, would not want to come. And it's not exhaustive, but I think it's really helpful for, you know, just for me to search my own heart and, and affections sure. as, I, as I heard you talk about the list earlier. And I think our listeners would really appreciate it as well. Could you give us, it's 10 things, right? No. No. How, how many, many is it? Six. Six. Okay. Less give us ten. the six reasons uh, you've sure. identified that's not exhaustive, but reasons yeah. why people would stop going to well, church. Well, as I preached through Hebrews 10, this was a list that I developed and I, I looked over it today in preparation for this podcast and I thought it was helpful. But there are different reasons why our affection for the body of Christ gets decreased and we stop attending. First thing I list would be secret sins that make you feel guilty and estrange you from God, you know. At that point, you're, you're violating your conscience um, and you feel guilty. And the last thing that you feel like doing is going to church surrounded by other happy, healthy, holy people. So secret sins. Secondly, bitterness and unforgiveness. 
you know, a relationship in the church that soured. Maybe a harsh word was spoken. Maybe some thoughtless deed caused some hurt. And maybe a sin of omission. Maybe you were hurt, hurting yourself. You were sick or you had a, a financial need or something and nobody even cared. Nobody showed any love at the time when you needed someone to care. And as a result of bitterness and unforgiveness, you feel hostile to the church. Thirdly, pride and arrogance toward other Christians. Feelings of spiritual superiority. You're better than others. You don't really need them. They're only actually in some ways holding you back in your Christian life. You have such a fruitful ministry during the week. You have great quiet times on your own. And you know why would you need to go to church? This is especially a problem for people who are in full-time um, vocational ministry with parachurch groups throughout the week, like crew or, or some other college ministry or some other ministry to the poor and needy during the week, a, a rescue shelter or something like that. And you have chapels throughout the week and you just, Sunday morning, you don't really feel like you need to go. You know, so pride and arrogance toward other Christians. Fourth is a lack of submission to God-ordained authority. The elders are leading in a direction you don't agree with. And you don't like the tra- direction church is going in this issue or that issue. could be worship style. Church has decided to go to a different you know, worship style and you just don't agree. Uh, or it could be some other things. Or perhaps some elder or pastor hurt you in some way, a sin of omission or commission. Something they did to you and they shouldn't have. Or some, something they didn't do and you feel they should have. Um, maybe this at this point you feel anger toward them, toward the elders or pastors, or resistance to the leadership of the church. You feel wronged and you begin to skip worship. Uh, fifth is an increasing love for the world. You know, the world has its grip on your heart. You're pursuing your career throughout the week. You're pursuing money or power throughout the week. And that dominates your life so much you can't make time for church anymore. Maybe you're even we- working seven days a week at this point. Try, try to get ahead. And so you just don't have time for church. Um, or worldly in a more of a pleasure sense. You, you're pursuing hobbies and pastimes and travel and vacations and things like that. And a, and a beach home or a, a lake home or a mountain home or something like that. And you just, you bought that and now you're just going to do a fixer-upper on the weekends. And, you know, you miss a lot of church as a result. So increasing love of the world. And then finally, increasing love of sleep and rest. You work hard through the week. You're tired and just want to sleep in a little bit and you just want some me time, you know, so to speak. So those would be six reasons uh, that make people um, forsake assembly. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful. Can you also give us some guidance? What about for those who um, feel for whatever reason they need to work on Sundays? I think an easy classic example would be someone who, you know, because of the obligations of the hospital has to pick up a Sunday shift. Maybe a doctor works 13 out of 14 days, be a typical resident shift or or a nurse, you know, has to has to do weekend shifts at times. I know you can't give an exact rubric, but help us think through, you know, maybe how many times or how often it's okay to miss and really have a clean conscience, or how would how would one think through that for their own life? Well, obviously, if you can somehow arrange your work life so that you are never missing church on Sunday, that would be optimal. And if there's anything you can do toward that end, like talking to your supervisor or to those that make the schedule, I think that should be your relentless goal. So even if you address that a year ago, um, you know, to keep addressing and say, you know, I want to miss as few church services as possible. So let's keep looking at that. I think lingering in the background of my answer all the time is get a different job, uh, you know, or a different setting. So, but I don't think that those people should be made to feel guilty. I, I don't think that. So I don't want them feeling guilty. I think always we, we know even, even some of the st- more, the strictest Sabbatarian confessions and all that say works of mercy and necessity are accepted on 
Sabbath observance. So, you know, Jesus said, look, if you have a, you know, a, a sheep or a, or a donkey or something that falls into a pit, you're going to reach down on the Sabbath and get it out. So medical people are needed seven days a week. So I understand that. But if you can organize your schedule and if you get seniority and you can, you can get the ability to get out, then do it. So that's what I would say, like Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 7. If you can get your freedom, do it. You know, try to get that. Um, I would also say uh, you need to make up for the missed times by other times of fellowship throughout the week. Like maybe you have to work through church, but your, ch- your church has a Sunday evening service or it has a, a home fellowship. You've you got to make sure you don't miss that. Some of the problems come if you've got somebody that works late on Saturday night into Sunday morning, so it's physically possible for them to come, but they're just so exhausted. They've been working for 22 straight hours, and that's hard. So uh, do they have the permission to just go home, even though physically you could go to church? You know, they really feel like they just need to go home and sleep. Again, I don't want to make a person like that feel guilty. But again, I want to urge them to try to get their schedule changed. And if they can at all do it, you know, uh, at all, then try to be in church on Sunday. That's just some basic advice I would give. Yeah, because if they don't, they're really missing out on the... On the stirring up to love and good deeds, they're missing out on a huge portion of the Christian life. So, it's so not... I would just, yeah, I would go back to what I said: a relentless pursuit of changing your work scheduling so that you can never miss church. You're never going to give up on that ideal. You're going to, you're going to kind of like be a persistent widow on that with your supervisor or whatever. Say, I want to never miss church on Sunday. What can we do to make that happen? Well, that can never be. It's like, all right, then, second step, I want to miss church as least as possible. What can we do to make that happen? You're just going to constantly be on that thing. Yeah. And the final thing in this text is verse 25. You know, he, he gives this exhortation in light of, he says, the day drawing near, sure. um, exhorting one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I know you talk a lot about living light of Judgment Day. How is that also an impetus for not missing church? Sure. Um, well, there's just, again, the, the, the positive and negative, and we've talked about this with, uh, with chapter 3. Uh, the negative reason why you should join a church is, you know, because of our own innate sinfulness. The fact that we need to see that, that we don't drift away from the living God by the deceptive power of sin, the hardening effects of sin. So that was the negative reason for joining a church. Positively, we join a church so that we can have people considering us and provoking us toward loving good deeds. And we're encouraged and exhorted toward loving good deeds. So negatively, to be exhorted to not sin. Positively, toward loving good deeds. We need that exhortation in our lives. And all the more as we see the day approaching. The time is drawing near. And so we don't want to be in danger of sin and thus waste our days here on earth. Or endanger our own souls. And we don't want to waste time. We want to be around people that are going to teach us the word and exhort us and do ministries together that we can do with them. And all the more in light of, in light of judgment day. As Paul says, I believe there's going to be a judgment day. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And not only that, I don't miss church. Okay, I I go to church because I know that someday I'm going to have to give an account for my life on earth and I need all the help I can get. So I need some good brothers and sisters around me to help me not sin, to exhort me and rebuke me if I start to drift, and also to help me and spur me on toward love and good deeds, all the more in light of Judgment Day when I give an account for everything. Absolutely. Well, that rounds out our questions for today. Do you have any final comments before we end the podcast? Sure. The two basic exhortations here draw near to God. 
draw near to him. Be close to him. Be intimate with him. And secondly, don't forsake assembling together, but draw near to the brothers and sisters. Make that a rich experience. And along with that, secondarily, in terms of drawing near to others, look for others who you think might be drifting. You know, our church covenant says we will watch over one another in brotherly love. I love that statement. So be a shepherd to your brothers and sisters. See if any of them are wandering and go, you know, join with your pastors and and help draw them back to a healthy walk with Christ. Yeah. That was episode 26 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 27, where we talk about Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. And the title is, Sinning Deliberately is a Dangerous Business. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.